I'd like you first to turn with me to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 14, and read with me the words of Jesus. And after we read that portion of John's Gospel, we're going to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 3, which are also the words of Jesus that are germane again to what we'll be looking at today. Jesus had been sharing with his disciples, the twelve apostles minus one, about the things that were to come. They had asked him, according to Matthew, after he had commented on the destruction of the temple, when will these things be? And what would be the sign of your coming in the end of this age? Jesus answered them in what we know in chapter 24 of Matthew as the Olivet Discourse. And it's there that Jesus outlines for us a great deal of information with regard to his return to the earth, to reign. But before that happens, he outlines for us several things that must take place. And it is there that Jesus speaks of the various things that will happen that are going to be so destructive, so terrible, that he says that these things are going to take place and nothing has ever happened like them before, nor ever shall happen after that. In other words, everything that we've experienced throughout our history in humankind, all the wars that have taken place, all the various trials and tribulations that mankind has had to face, all the persecutions of the church, all of the pain and suffering from various diseases, all of that pales in comparison to what is going to take place in that day that Jesus in Matthew 24 has described. It'll be a terrible time, a terrible, wicked Evil time. And we see around us today much evil. We're just scratching the surface. Do you understand? Evil is persisting and growing in its power throughout the world. In our own state, with the passage of bills like LD 1619 and other bills that are being considered that deal with the transgender issues that the world thinks are so important, but God's Word says they're going down a path of destruction as they have never gone before. And they are going to continue to come down against those things are, are what God speaks of as being moral and right and true. They hate God's Word. They hate the morality that God says we must adhere to. They hate Christianity. They hate being submitted to the authority of a God who is the one and only true God who created all things and they will be held accountable by Him. But they don't care about those things. They want to do what they want to do. Just like the nation of Israel did in the many days that they were living in the times of the judges over and over again, God would deliver them from the various things that were taking place in their situation. He would deliver them and then they would praise Him for a season and then they would turn back away from God again and the cycle continued. And it says in the book of Judges over and over and over again, they did what was right in their own eyes. That's what's happening in the world today. Not only in our state, in our entire nation, we're seeing that trend continue. Evil is progressing toward a place where they will ultimately be judged. 
I don't know how long that's going to be before God brings judgment upon this nation. I do know that every time that Israel turned against God, that eventually God poured out His wrath upon them as a people. He judged them for their sin. He judged them for their turning away from Him. Do we think that that's not going to happen in this state, in this country? I hope you don't believe that, because I'm looking at what God says in His Word, and I see judgment falling upon us because of our sin, because of our negligence, because of our rejection of Him. It's got to come. How long? Only God knows. I pray for mercy. But what God's Word does say is that for the church, there's an escape clause written by the Lord through the Holy Spirit. We have an escape clause. And if you think that it's wrong to think of ourselves as a church, that we should be escapists, then read the Word of God. Jesus himself said, pray that you may escape these things that are coming upon the earth. Why would he say that thing if it wasn't so that we can indeed escape those things. And the Word of God declares it so very clearly to us. First Thessalonians, which we had finished studying several weeks ago now, talked about this escape that we have ahead of us. The rapture of the church. Now, not everybody believes, as I have been trying to teach you, with regard to the timing of this rapture of the church. Some people don't even... Christians... Some Christians don't even believe that there will be such a thing as the rapture of the church. They mock you. They scornfully speak against those things in the church, liberal churches. Well, it doesn't surprise me because many liberal churches don't believe in the virgin birth. Many liberal churches don't believe in the triune God. They don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. What do they believe? God is love. Yes, God is love, but God is a God of judgment. And it would be unloving of our God to not judge evil. That's what His Word declares. So we're here today to observe, hopefully, the Word of God as it presents to us. Those things which are yet to take place including the rapture, although we're not going to be talking much about the rapture, although that is a reality. I believe that is what is going to be next on our list of things that are going to happen soon, and very soon, I hope. But with all the things that are going on in this country, in this state, around the world, what's happening in Paris, France, and other locations all throughout the nation of France, this terrible onslaught, this activity of evil, and yes, it was the result of the murder of a young Muslim man, 17 years old, who was stopped for apparently a traffic violation. But that traffic violation soon turned into a disaster. There's some discrepancies as to why that took place, but the man was murdered by a police officer. The police tell us that it was an accident that he intended to shoot the driver in the foot to stop him from being able to escape, but the car swerved and hit the officer, and the officer fired at the same time, and the bullet went into his chest instead of at his leg. That may be, it may be just a story. None of us know. But the result of that one incident is that many places in France are on fire right now. And who knows, but that might not spread. One of the fears that 
have been expressed is that it will indeed spread, not only to other communities in France, but other nations around them. The Muslim populations in Europe have been growing substantially, and the fear is a really very serious threat that will result in a whole lot of calamity throughout the nations in Europe. That may be so. It may not affect you and me, because we're so far away. That's too bad if that's the case. It should affect us. It should concern us. We should be praying for such things. We should be praying for what's going on in Ukraine. We should be praying for what's happening in North Korea. We should be praying for a peace that will finally come between our nation and those with whom we have been at odds. But it cannot be, it must not be peace at any cost. And yet we find our own government moving away from their friendship with Israel to attempt to bring some kind of level of security in the Middle East. It's not going to work. They want to favor the Palestinian government. That is not a government at all. It's an authority, but a terrorist group. No matter what they may say, they're teaching their children to do evil things, to eliminate Israel, not to become their friends, not to learn to live beside each other, but to eliminate them. It's plain and simple. Iran wants the destruction of Israel. They are dead set against anything that would stop them from developing a nuclear arsenal. They're on the way. They're almost there. And who knows, but they may have already achieved that. And they're just waiting for the right time to strike. Israel is concerned about that. And so there may be a preemptive strike by Israel. What will that look like? Well, the Bible doesn't say specifically about those things, but the Bible does say that Israel is real. They became a nation in 1948. They are God's people. They're here to stay. No matter what the governments of the world may think, Europe is against Israel. The United States is soon going to be against Israel. That implies, my friends, that no nation will be friends of Israel. And that's exactly what the Word of God declares. So let us be aware of these things. Let us be mindful of what is going on in the world and know that these things are happening because of what God has already declared in His Word. But again, before those terrible things play out, there's hope for us. While we are here, there is light to be shining brightly in the churches. There is salt that the church alone has that must not lose its savor. So we should be not only mindful, but we should be proactive. We should be telling the world around us, this is what God's Word says. Are you curious about what's happening in the world? I know why it's happening. Can you tell your friends and neighbors such things as this? It's important. It's needful. It's time. But before those things take place again, there is that hope that we have, that blessed hope of the soon return of Jesus Christ for His church. Are we ready? Do we believe that He is indeed coming for us to take us to be with Himself? Because that is what Jesus had said. Now let's turn to John chapter 14 and remind ourselves of these things through the precious words of Jesus Himself. In chapter 14 of the Gospel of John, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. 
In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Where is Jesus now? The Word of God tells us plainly, He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He is in heaven. He ascended into heaven after the 40 days on earth, just immediately after His resurrection. He ministered to His apostles and those who would hear Him in those days were blessed to hear Him speak of the fact that He was going to come again. But before He comes, He would send a Comforter. That would be the Holy Spirit. And He outlined that for us in this passage in John, as well as in John 16, that there would be a Comforter who would come. But in the meantime, He's going to go to be with His Father. And he says, the reason he's going to be with his Father is so that he can prepare a place for you that where he is, there we may be also. And it tells us very plainly, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I want to be there. I pray for two possible solutions to this dilemma that we're facing in our world, this crisis that is growing on a daily basis. Either the Lord returns or the Lord brings revival. I pray for one or the other, Lord God, whichever you choose, let it be so. I hope that that would be your prayer as well. Pray for God's return, the Lord's return for His church. Get us out of here, Lord, if there aren't going to be any further hope of people getting saved. And yet I also know that there's a fullness of the Gentiles that must come in before we're done. And as long as the church is here, that must mean that there's more work to be done. There are more people to be saved. That the fullness of Gentiles has not yet come in. But I think it's close. So Lord, either return or bring revival. That's my prayer. But what Jesus has told His disciples, remember this, they are Jews who knew nothing of such things as what He has described in this passage in John 14. They did not anticipate going up into heaven because that was not the promise in the Old Testament for the Jewish people. They believed that the Messiah would come to reign, and He will, and He would sit on the throne of David, and He will. They expected a wonderful period of time that would be blessing upon blessing for the people of God, and that will happen. But that won't happen yet. There's other things that must take place before that particular series of events takes place. We'll also be looking at that as well as the Lord tarries, if He wills, because it's so important for us. But here, in this passage that we've just read, take note of the fact that Jesus has said, I will come again. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. In Revelation chapter 3, also in chapter 2, the Lord Jesus is speaking through the Apostle John to the churches. And he sends seven letters to the churches by the hand of Paul in the book of Revelation. And we're going to be looking at one of the latter of those churches, the church at Philadelphia. I picked this particular church in this for this reason. It is here, this church at Philadelphia, 
that Jesus makes a promise. And you have to understand something about the various churches that are addressed in this book of Revelation. They were seven churches that existed in the time that John wrote these words. No question, they were historically present on the earth. John was addressing those churches that existed in his lifetime. But it's also true that if you look at these very carefully, you find a pattern of revelation. And that's what this book is all about. The revealing, the uncovering, that's what revelation means. And it's in this passage that many theologians, and I'm among those who agree with this, believe that the seven churches, as they're illustrated in this book of Revelation, are a timeline, if you will, of events throughout the history of the church. So not only are these seven churches historical churches, but these seven churches represent epochs of time throughout the time that the church will be in existence. And if that indeed is so, then the church at Philadelphia becomes a key element in that particular timeline. Read it with me now. Chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. Jesus speaking, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens, but no one shuts, and shuts, and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to preserve or to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. That speaks of the rapture. I will keep you from that hour of trial. Remember in chapter 5 of the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, also in chapter 1, Paul tells us that we as a church will not suffer the wrath of God will be excluded from that which is going to take place upon the earth when he pours out his wrath. That wrath will be poured out upon a Christ-denying world. There's no question about it. When does that happen? Still, Still yet to come. It's down the road. How long? None of us knows. But we will not be here when that does take place. The Apostle Paul made it so very, very clear Now again, much in the church, many theologians, many people who are naming the name of Christ, many of them very, very strong in their faith, but also many liberals, laugh at such things that the Lord would come to spare us from that wrath that is to come. Part of the reason for that is because of the word tribulation. We use that word to describe that period of seven years that will be taking place upon the earth. It's known as the tribulation period. The latter three and a half years of that is typically called the great tribulation. But Jesus had said to his disciples, Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. But when he said that, he also said, In this world you shall have tribulation. 
You shall have tribulation. So if that's the case, then what Paul is saying here in First and Second Thessalonians is that the tribulation should be something that we would expect. Well, that's part of the problem because the church is confused about such things when you take a word and use it for two different particular meanings. But you have to understand taking everything in context is so very important. So when Jesus said, in this world you shall have tribulation, what did he mean? He meant that there will always be trouble. There will always be trials. There will always be difficulties. There will always be an effort by the enemy of our souls to stump us, to cause us to fall. The world will hate you because they hated him. Tribulation will result in that. But that's not the great tribulation that he's talking about here. That source of that tribulation is not God, but it is Satan and the world around us. They are the source of this tribulation that we all are familiar with. But the tribulation that Jesus described, that Paul described in the last days, is a tribulation that will come upon the face of the earth to judge the ungodly, the Christ-rejecting world. It will be known and has been written as the time of Jacob's trouble. So the Jews will be in their land and there will be a very, very troubled period of time for them to have to endure. It hasn't begun yet. And it will not until the church is removed. Now I say all of that as an introduction to what we're going to read in Second Thessalonians. Because I want you to understand that the Thessalonian church had been taught by the Apostle Paul when he was there for just three Sabbaths and however long after that before he had to leave the Thessalonican area and head south down to Athens and then ultimately to Corinth. He had told them many things about the coming of the Lord. They were well instructed by the Apostle Paul on the end times. The Apostle Paul at that time in his ministry was telling people everywhere that he went that the Lord is returning and that there will be a time of tribulation that will come upon the earth as well. Now having said that, he left Thessalonica. And a short while after, Timothy had to come and find him in Corinth and explain to Paul there was some confusion in Thessalonica regarding the end times. And so Paul wrote First Thessalonians to kind of straighten out their misconceptions with regard to the rapture of the church. And it's there that we read in chapter 4 of First Thessalonians the great promise of that rapture that he spoke of. He said, For the Lord will come with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the air, and there we shall ever be with the Lord. That's the promise of God's word regarding the rapture of the church. The harpazo in the Greek language. Rapture is a Latin term. And so anybody that tries to convince you that the rapture doesn't appear in the Bible, just tell them to read their Latin version. That will happen. That will take place. And I believe it's next in a series of events that will take place. There's nothing else that needs to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church. Nothing. It's on the horizon. And Jesus had said in Matthew and in Luke and also in Mark, the three synoptic Gospels, 
that there are things that are going to take place upon the earth that will not be pretty, that will not be comfortable for anyone who is there. But it always speaks of they who are on the earth at that time. Never involves the church. Never involves you and I. It always is speaking of those who are on the earth at that time. Why is that so? The plain and simple truth is, it's because we won't be here. At least those of us who are true believers in Christ. Those of us who have been born again. Those of us who have been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. Those of us who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. That's all of us here, I believe. I hope it is so. Because one of these days there is going to come a day when there won't be any of us left unless there are some of us here now who don't believe. And then those of us who don't believe will find an empty church the next time you come in. What if that happens? Well, Paul addresses that. The Thessalonians thought that, all right, Paul said, we're going to be taken out of this world. Wonderful. But a few months apparently had passed And now there's some changes that are taking place in Thessalonica that prompted them to ask more questions. And Paul is here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 beginning to unfold the answers to what they were concerned about. What was their concern? It's given to us. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, the book of 2 Thessalonians, these words, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to Him... We ask you, that's rather a light translation, it's we implore you, we beseech you, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. They were concerned that they were already experiencing what they knew Paul had spoken of regarding the end days, that trouble that no man had ever known before, had come upon them. Their conclusion was that they had missed, apparently, the rapture of the church and that they had entered into the tribulation period. So they asked whoever it was that brought this letter, presumably Timothy, to have Paul address these concerns. They were troubled because of all of the things that were going on in their communities the persecutions that they were experiencing. And they, again, thought that they had already entered into this tribulation period that Paul had spoken of, that Jesus had warned about. Again, read it with me. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to Him, we implore you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter as is from us. In other words, apparently, there were those within the Thessalonican church who were making some kind of prophetic claims in the Spirit, speaking the word of knowledge, presumably, or by word, people actually in leadership, talking to the people of Thessalonica that trouble has come, and because of that we must understand that God has forgotten us. Or by letter, Paul says. In other words, there maybe have been some who had written letters and made them appear to be from Paul, talking about the fact that the tribulation was already underway. Paul is addressing those false claims. He says, no, don't be shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter as from us, as though the day of Christ had come. So take note of the fact that Paul is referring to this tribulation period, that's what we call it, but he calls it the day of Christ. 
Again, Jesus called it the Great Tribulation. Jeremiah called it the time of Jacob's trouble. Daniel spoke of these things in his great prophetic words. Speaking of the 70 weeks, we refer to them the 70 weeks of Daniel. And we proclaim that the 70th week, the last seven-year period, has not yet been fulfilled. So this is the 70th week of Daniel that we're referring to, the time of tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the last days, the day of the Lord. All of that pointing to this period of time, this seven-year interval of man's history that will unfold after the church is out of here, taken away. I say that again emphatically. I believe it to be so. You may believe otherwise. That doesn't make us enemies. I hope that's understood. That just makes it so that some of us are confused. God is not the author of confusion. So I prefer to read God's Word and look at God's Word and see what God's Word declares and put it together in such a way as what I believe is truth. Now, no man knows the hour, the time, the day, the year. No one knows. God only. But I know it's close. Jesus said, you are able to see signs. And when you see the signs, know that the day is approaching. That's his point. That's Paul's emphasis. That's mine as well. The day is approaching. Reading on in chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians, Paul says, Let no one deceive you by any means. I take note of that passage because that reminds me also of what Jesus said. Let no one deceive you. Jesus warned that deception can indeed affect our understanding of what God's Word says. And Paul and Jesus both say, don't be deceived. There are many voices in the world around us. There are many voices in the churches. Wherever you go, whether it's on the Internet or in whatever books you may read, there must be discernment. Do not be deceived, because there are many who are speaking things that really are not true. And some of them, well-meaning, Bible-believing, born-again believers have spoken things that are misleading or at best simply misunderstandings of what God's Word declares. Perhaps some of you are familiar with the red moon. Well, there was a really very popular Christian Bible-believing born-again believer who wrote a book. His name is John Hagee. It's filled with all kinds of very impressive information regarding the timing of certain events, specifically with regard to our moon. Well, the Bible does talk about a red moon. And what John Hagee basically said was, there is going to be coming a time, and he wrote this several years ago now, that there would be a series of red moons that will appear, and the fourth one will be significant prophetically. One of the problems with that is that he has a misunderstanding of what the Word of God says with regard to a red moon. For instance, in the book of Joel, the Old Testament prophet Joel speaks of the sun 
no longer giving its light, and the moon turning red. There's also in the book of Revelation a reference to that event taking place. The sun will not give its light, and the moon will not be able to reflect that light. It will appear darkened or red. But those things are written after the tribulation has been finished. When Christ comes to end that seven-year period of tribulation and stands on the Mount of Olives, that's when the red moon will become a physical reality. Not now, not four or five or six years ago, as was declared. That's just one misconception. He made a lot of money on the selling of that book. But it's not correct. But many Bible-believing Christians were sucked into it. And that's only one example. There are so, so many. There are so, so many well-intentioned believers who have been led astray by false teachings. Paul says, do not be deceived. In his day, the Thessalonian church, there was an attempt to deceive them. Things haven't changed. Friends, deception is still very much a reality in our world today, in the church. Whether it's liberal media or liberal churches or well-intentioned Bible-believing pastors standing in the pulpits of the churches where God's Word is adhered to and believed. It needs to be tested. Be Bereans. Every one of us must be. That means two things. First, you have to know what God's Word says. And secondly, you have to go to God's Word to confirm what you're hearing. If you can find anything in the Word of God that refutes what I tell you, then tell me that you found it, and then let's discuss it. That's simple. Paul was challenged. Do you think I would be wanting not to be? God forbid. If I speak error, I want to know that I'm speaking error because I do not want to be among those who do such things. I want to speak God's truth. I want to speak it as a warning to the church. Not because we're going to go through that tribulation, but a warning that we can be deceived into thinking that we might go through that tribulation period. So here Paul is saying, do not be deceived. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, speaking of the time of tribulation, that seven-year period of time that Daniel spoke of, the time of Jacob's trouble, the time that Jesus spoke of as a time of tribulation such as no man has known nor ever shall after, he's saying that day will not come unless these two things happen. There is a falling away that comes first and the man of sin is revealed who is known as the son of perdition. Two things. There is a falling away that must take place. Some of your translations may say departure instead of falling away. It's the same idea. It's the word apostasia in the Greek. And it is the same word that we get our word apostasy from. And it means just that. A removal or departure from something that was already known or believed. A departure from the faith. Paul speaks of that here in this passage. He speaks of it in First and Second Timothy as well. He talks about these things, that in the last days there will come a time when men will not believe sound doctrine. Turn with me to Second Timothy chapter 4. 
Second Timothy chapter 4 tells us this very thing. Verse 3 of chapter 4 says, For the time will come when they will not endure a sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. That's a scary thought, that people could be so deceived as to think that there are some that will come into the church who will begin to sway the hearts of those who have believed in the truth of God's Word, who have adhered to the power of the Spirit of God to conduct His will for us through faithful ministers of the Gospel. That is going to happen in the last days. Has it begun? Oh, yes, it has. Turn now with me to First Timothy chapter 4 of First Timothy. Verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 4 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Does that sound like it's happening in the world today? Unfortunately, my friends, the answer is yes, it is happening. And it should not be, because the Word of God tells us you should not allow yourself to be deceived, and yet Paul says many will be in the last days. There is coming a deception upon the world, and many people will succumb to it. That's the problem. That's the danger. That's what we want to emphasize here in this place today. Don't be deceived into thinking these things are happening, because they haven't yet. Oh, things are troubling all around us. As we spoke of a little while ago, all kinds of things are taking place around the world that wonder of all wonders, is that possibly the beginning of the tribulation period spoken of? It is not. It's, according to Jesus, pointing to that inevitability. He said, when you see these things begin to take place, know that it is near. Jesus talked about it as, and Peter also, uh, Paul rather, also, as birth pangs. Ladies, you know what birth pangs are all about. The contractions that come. First, minor thing. A little bit of an unsettled feeling. That begins to happen with more intensity. And over time, with more frequency. That's what Jesus and Paul were speaking of. The events that are happening in the world are like birth pangs. The contractions. But the delivery of the child has not yet arrived. But in the process, because of the trouble, because of the birth pains, many will begin to question. Many will begin to wonder, are we there? Did it happen already? Did I miss the rapture? Paul's ensuring to this Thessalonian church and to us, no, it has not. Because there are two things that must take place. Again, the first is a falling away. I believe that's already beginning. I believe that there is apostasy. There always has been in the church, but I think that apostasy is beginning to grow more and more widespread and is entering into even evangelical churches as well. Because people get tired of hearing, oh, the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. The Lord will be coming soon. And they've been around for 25, 30 years and say, where is the Lord's coming? You've been saying this for so long and nothing has changed. Well, God's timing is not your timing, my friends. 
Peter tells us that the Lord's timing is so far different from ours. For as far as he's concerned, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. He is in control. It's in his timing, by his doing, that things will take place. He holds it together in the palm of his hands. By the word of his power, he holds this world together. Man will not destroy this world although we've got the capability of doing so. And by the way, that's just another reason for us to realize we are in the last days. Because Jesus described that if He does not come, then man would indeed destroy himself. And how could that have been possible in the first, second, third, fourth centuries? None of those things could be possible, but now it is. We have the capability in this country alone to destroy the earth over four times. That's not enough. Russia has at least that much power or more. Now, China is developing hypersonic weaponry along with Russia. North Korea has threatened also that they have that capability. Iran. What about India and Pakistan? All nuclear powers. What are we going to do? The world is coming to an end. Well, yes, it is. But not in man's timing. In God's. Let no one deceive you. A falling away must take place. And then secondly, he talks about this son of perdition, this man of sin, who will be revealed after the rapture of the church. Because the falling, of the falling away that is described here can't really fully be completed until the church is gone. We see... A falling away, as I said. But it is nothing like what it will be in that last days. When the church is gone, then evil will be fully released. And there will certainly be a falling away. So I believe that the rapture of the church and this falling away are tied together at the hip. But the man of sin will not be revealed until that falling away takes place. That's a key passage to our understanding of what will happen in the latter days. You see, this man of sin, also known as the Antichrist, also known in the book of Revelation as the Beast, he's referred to here as the son of perdition. Do you realize that there's only one person in the whole Word of God about whom that phrase is used? The son of perdition, Jesus used that phrase regarding Judas Iscariot. But here Paul is using that phrase with regard to another individual. One who will come on the scene. I don't know if he's alive yet. I don't know if he's in power yet anywhere in the world. As I understand it, he will come. And he will make a lot of changes in the world. I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Daniel. Daniel gives us a sense of the power that this particular individual will have. And it is in the last days that he speaks of these things. But I'm going to couple that with some other things that are spoken in the Word of God that gives us a sense of hope and expectation. But in Daniel chapter 7, beginning with verse 24, we read these words. Daniel had seen a vision 
and the angel of the Lord reveals to Daniel the meaning of that vision that he sees. And he says in verse 24, The ten horns that you saw in your vision are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. This kingdom is a reference to the Roman Empire. That once great Roman Empire that ruled the world. It was never destroyed. It just simply imploded. But there will be a revival of that Roman Empire in the latter days. Daniel chapter 2 speaks of that. We're not going to go there now, but I do want you to understand that it is according to the Word of God that we make this claim. The Roman Empire will be revived, and it will be much of what is now known as present-day modern Western Europe. The ten horns are ten kings coming from that kingdom. And another shall arise after them, and he shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings, and he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, that's the Jews, Daniel is a Jew, he's speaking to Jews, and he shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand. Again, that's referring to the Jewish nation. Read the book of Revelation, and you'll see that actually unfold in those words that are given by the Apostle John. He says, the saints will be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. That's a way of prescribing a period of time of three and a half years. The last three and a half years of the tribulation period, what Jesus referred to as the great tribulation, what the book of Revelation refers to as a time of Jacob's trouble, that time when the Bold judgments will be poured out against a Christ-rejecting world. That's the latter three and a half years of this seven-year period that Daniel speaks of in chapter 9. Verse 26 of Daniel 7 says, But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion. Talking about the fact that the Antichrist, that one who will come, will be destroyed. His reign will be temporal. To consume and destroy it forever. There's another kingdom that will be established, my friends. His kingdom will not last. It will be coming to an end at the appointed time. Verse 27 says, Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. The Jews will be in leadership roles in that new kingdom. And it says, His kingdom. Now this is referring to Jesus Himself coming to reign in Jerusalem on David's throne. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And all dominions shall serve and obey Him. That is a global government. Now the Antichrist will try to establish a global government. Things are being put into place for that to take place. I think that the AI the digital currency, the unrest in the world, the lacks of national power, or lack of a focus on nationalities, a more global perspective, is becoming a reality. It has to be in place. Even 
UFOs, I believe, have a part in this. Have you ever noticed, and I've mentioned it already in the past, but I've mentioned it again here, there's an awful lot of reference to UFOs lately. So many more references daily in the news media about sightings of UFOs. What are they? No one really knows for sure. But I believe the demonic. Angels appeared in those olden days that referenced in the Word of God as humans. Many of them had swords, shields. They were armed with the weaponry of the day. Why do we think that they can't do that with regard to what we're seeing? If it is being seen, is it not perhaps the same thing, although modernized? One of the things, one of the things that will take place once the church is gone is that there will be a deception. Remember, Paul said, do not be deceived. Don't be among those who are deceived. But we'll look at that deception in a few minutes. But I believe that's part of it. Back to Daniel. His kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, again, is an everlasting kingdom. And all dominion shall serve and obey Him. That is the promise of the Old Testament. It's also the promise of the New Testament. He is coming. He will reign. He will sit on the throne of David because it was spoken by the prophets and it must be fulfilled. Oh God, may it be so. And again my prayer, Lord, come quickly. It's time for you to act for they have made your law void. The son of perdition will come on the scene, but he has not yet been revealed. And he won't be revealed until the falling away first takes place. It's all in God's timing. It has to be in the order that God has prescribed. And this is what he says in Second Thessalonians again, chapter 4, verse 4. This one, this son of perdition, opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. At the time of Paul's writing, the temple was still in Jerusalem. There was no question, as you read the letters of Paul, as he speaks about the end times, that he believed he would be among those who would be taken out. That's why he said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, that we, including himself, who remain and alive, will be caught up together with those who have passed on before us, and there we shall ever be with the Lord. He's speaking in a personal way, expecting that he will be among those who will be raptured. Well, Paul was not raptured. The temple was still present when Paul passed away. He was murdered, by the way, by the Romans by cutting off his head. That happened in somewhere around 64 or 65 A.D. Well, in 70 A.D., the temple was destroyed. The only one still around, as far as we know, at that time was John. 
And John wrote 20 years later, probably around the year 90, as a very old man, the book of Revelation, and probably the first, second, and third letters, and also the gospel at that late time in his life. The temple was no longer in Jerusalem. But do you think that John spoke while Paul was wrong? Or, or Paul didn't understand? Paul was misled? Paul was confused? No, he doesn't say that at all. Everything that John writes is in agreement with what Paul had said. Only now it's looking further into the future. Because John is receiving a revelation that these things will not take place until certain other things must indeed be fulfilled. He expands on what Paul had said, and although the temple was no longer in Jerusalem, he speaks in the book of Revelation of a man who will come and enter into the temple of God, into the Holy of Holies, in that last day, and he will profane the temple, making himself to be God. That's what Paul is saying here. John agrees completely with it in the book of Revelation. Is it clear? Are you understanding a little bit of what's going to happen? Does it bother you? Or are you saying, thank you, Jesus. You're in control. You're on the way. You are my Savior. And you will see to it that I will not have to suffer these things because you have spoken I believe that's the case. I hope you do too. Because this man who comes is going to do some terrible things. Some very evil things. Because he's going to be indwelt by Satan himself. And if I'm not mistaken, if the church is indeed removed from the earth, then evil will be unchecked. And Satan will indeed pour out his wrath against those who are remaining on the earth. There won't be a time of great fellowship among believers. There won't be a time of peace. Although the Antichrist will come on the scene as a man of peace. Keep in mind, in the first three and a half years, there will be over a third of the population of the world destroyed, dead, because of the things that will take place. It will not be fun for anyone who's on the earth at that time. Paul again, in verse 5, and we'll end there, reminds him, I told you these things. He says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Are we not able to understand? Are we not able to see what God's Word is clearly declaring? We must be ready. Why? Not because we're going to have to go through such things but because we're still here and we've got opportunity to tell others. So, my friends, it's time for the church to wake up from their sleep. While there's still day, it's time for letting the light shine. If we're hiding that light under a bushel, then shame on us. God forbid that we would allow that to continue. If we're quenching the Holy Spirit, God forgive us. Let us be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let us be used by the Spirit of God in these last days to convict the world of sin and righteousness of judgment. That's the Spirit's purpose in coming to this world. His purpose is to draw all men unto Himself. It's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to a knowledge of Christ. 
Are you and I being used by God to that end? If we're not, then we should be on our knees asking Him, Please, God, use me. Send me. Fill me. The time is at hand. Are you, am I, willing to be used by Him? I believe that any one of us can do mighty and wonderful things on behalf of our Lord and Savior. Let us not grieve the Holy Spirit. Let us not quench His power in us. But let us live boldly in these last days, my friends. Let us live for Him and be willing to die for Him. In Jesus' name, Amen.